Boondoggle. A transatlantic take on the crisis of Western democracy. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of Boondoggle. My name is Jim Driscoll and in this series I'm going to be joined by the writer and polemicist Chris Floyd. We're going to be widening our remit in this series and not just looking at US politics but also discussing the UK political scene and maybe some European politics as well as the mood takes us. Uh, we also hope to be welcoming some guests onto later episodes, including, of course, our compadre from Series 1 of Boondoggle, the writer Sasha Abramsky, who will be uh, giving us his insights from California on uh, the US uh, political scene. In this first episode, though, me and Chris uh, stick with our familiar stomping ground and discuss the aftermath of the Carl Rittenhouse verdict and some structural issues with American politics that we think that verdict uh, highlights. Yeah, I guess one thing we were thinking about talking about tonight was the um, the Carl Rittenhouse case in uh, yeah. in America, um, which uh, I guess... Um, it's a story that needs no introduction, I guess. Now you know it's the young kid who went up to cross state lines to go up to Kenosha, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and uh, killed two people and shot another person, and then was acquitted of all charges uh, this week uh, or last week. Yeah, I was looking at uh, the looking at the internet, and you know these uh, there, there there are some people out there that I follow who do the very brave job uh, and thankless job of monitoring the far-right social media. You know, they go in. Yeah, yeah. Parlor, and you know those people. And uh, mm, mm. I mean, of course, uh, increasingly the far-right social media is just the mainstream conservative media. They're sort of blend, bleeding, blending in together. There. But, you know, of course, they tell us that as soon as the, um, you know, the, all these extremist sites just lit up with excitement when the verdict came down, you know. Uh, yeah. They were uh, touting... Uh, hunting licenses for liberals and uh, declaring vindication for vigilantism. And, uh, and, of course, you know, we talk about blending. We had um, Republican members of the United States Congress, you know, uh, the greatest deliberative body in the world, um, rushed off for Rittenhouse internships. You know, three or four people said he could come to work for us. You know, And one was prepared to, uh, one proposed that he be given a Congressional Medal of Honor, you know, for going and shooting some people. Um What's odd, though, is that all these people were praising him for, you know, taking up arms to defend his community, which is one thing people kept saying is his community. Um, but, of course, his... Uh, How was he defending his community in Illinois, in Wisconsin? I, this is what I don't understand. Anyway, yes. He, well, he was, um, he was um, defending community in the broader sense, I believe. You know, oh, the I white, see, yes. The, the white community. The white community, right. Okay. And I think his father, who he doesn't live with... Uh, Lives somewhere around that area. So, um, so this is. But what's funny is that you know, um, the Rittenhouse response was actually all about self-defense. It was self-defense. You know, he's yeah. being praised now. He's being faded now for being a hero of uh, vigilantism and, and going forward and taking a, a proactive, you know, stance to defend his community. But actually, uh, you know, the claim is it's self-defense, and that's what um, that you know that's what he claimed that he was felt under threat and that's why he killed the first person and then the second person who was trying to disarm him, then he killed that person who who did hit him with a skateboard trying to disarm this man who just shot somebody in front of his yeah but i was just reading this article by patrick blanchfield um and he's he's a really good writer he writes for all kinds of 
magazine said this was a piece in Gawker, I think. And uh, I think he tweets under uh, uh, inverted cube or something. You know, so uh, I don't, you probably know him. Um, but he was pointing out that uh, this concept of self-defense uh, is uh, it's never applied equally in, in U.S. law. You know, it's never been applied equally. And this was like it sort of sets a, a greater context of what uh, this action that actually the, the Rittenhouse case. I mean, because you could you could parse and pick over all sorts of things in Rittenhouse case. Well, you, you know what happened minute by minute and where he was and all this kind of stuff. Of course, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I, I I mean, there is there is um, you know there there is some interesting stuff about how the law on self defense works. And as I as I understand it. Um, in in Wisconsin, like in a number of other states, then uh, once you make a, a you know sort of prima facie credible claim of self defence, then it is for the prosecution to disprove that claim. Mm. Um, you know, a burden of proof, which actually I think in uh, you know is probably broadly speaking, not specifically in relation to, to this case, but broadly speaking, is the right way to go. Well, it's the right it's the right concept. Yes, you know, as, as all sorts of legal concepts are if they're applied equally. Mm. And also, just in this particular case, again, not to get into the weeds of the case so much, is that uh, the prosecution were somewhat hampered in their ability to to show that it wasn't, uh, that it, you know, that it wasn't actually self because he wouldn't allow them to so, you know, they had some film clips there taken on the night, but the judge refused to let them show it in court yeah. because, uh, because uh, you know, he, literally he held up his phone. You know, sometimes you try to zoom in on these things on your phone, they get real, they get real squarely. You can't see what's going on. So yeah. you guys can't show us that. So anyway, that, that's a question about that. Yeah. But I was uh, thinking about what Blanchfield was writing about was, um, uh, you know, self-defense, the concept of self-defense, not only of your body, but even more so maybe of property, because that's also enters into it. Uh, you know, it's just been centuries. It's been weighted toward, uh, you know, white men, basically. You know, as he says, you know, white men... Uh, in the olden days, could exercise self-defense against indigenous peoples and against the uh, African slaves, but never the reverse. You see, you know, you know, a slave couldn't yeah. couldn't yeah, uh, yeah. exercise you know. And even the assumed or imagined threat of an attack on white property and life was uh, was always considered justification for preemptive self-defense, which is actually what Rittenhouse, uh, you know, his initial attack was preemptive self-defense. This guy hadn't. Hadn't hit him, hadn't attacked him, had no weapon, but he thought he was going to be hurt, you know. So this is the preemptive thing, and of course, you know what? Uh, and this idea of preemptive self-defense, uh, you know, on behalf of of, of white people, basically, uh, the ruling people, you know, not only in individual cases, but for for white society as a whole, because you know, history, the historical record is replete with all these. Uh, uh, stories of massacres of indigenous peoples and uh, massacres of black people, uh, you know, not only as slaves, but you have the, the Tulsa massacre, which we've been recently, from the 1922, that we've recently been remembering. Um, and all these are on the, all the, on the principle of uh, the self-defense of life and property. So that the, in the U.S. history, you know, the mere existence of uh, non-white people or uh, you know, people standing with non-white people nearby constituted a, a constant threat that could be met with preemptive violence, and this is sort of what we've seen in uh, the Rittenhouse case. You know, it's uh, and uh, uh, Blanchfield makes a very good point about there's always been this hierarchy of self-defense. You know, slaves who resisted their torture by masters they had no self-defense right. You know, they were punished for self-defense. Women had no legal right to defend themselves against rape and violence by their husbands. 
um, because they were the property of their husbands. Uh, you know, women could only defend themselves against other men, other men, other white men, on the principle that they were defending their husband's property. You know, you can't attack yeah. your husband's property. Yeah. Um, and even today, you know, in these our enlightened times, when the stand your ground laws everywhere nominally allow all citizens to shoot dead anybody who, gives, who looks at you funny, you know, uh, you, he looked at me funny, I shot him, you know, you, that should extend to all citizens. You know, the, these studies show that you know, overwhelming disparities in favor of uh, a white. Defendants evoking this defense, you know, stand your ground and yeah, stuff like that. Again, absolutely, you know, you know mm, and so, um, mm, mm. you know, it's undeniable that 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 uh, that operates in in general. And and you only have to ask yourself in this specific case, you know, if uh, if uh, if Rittenhouse had been black, you know, and he was well, wandering around in the way that he did with a with a with a rifle and and shot people, he wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't be standing trial because he wouldn't have made it you know no, no. to a trial you know he'd no. have been dead that night no he'd have been dead he'd been dead minute right you know yeah and you know and, I mean that's just that's just undeniable anyone says oh no I think you know I'm not sure that that would have happened it's just uh, lying really yes I know it's a uh, well I mean again you know in U.S. society you have this thing where the mere uh, this again for the self defense thing uh, as we see stand your ground you know. Not so much in this case, but the mere presence of a black person is often considered a potential threat, you know, to a white person, which is why you have the dis- these disparities yeah. in the stand your ground laws, you know. Because yeah. we have, well, you have this case now of the Ahmed Arbery case, which is going on at the same time down in Georgia. You've heard it, I mean, you know, that case where you have three white men who just pulled over a guy who was jogging through a suburb and unarmed man. And first they hit, tried to hit him four times with their truck. Then they pulled out a shotgun and they killed him. And now they're on trial saying it was self-defense because uh, he's a black man. He was in a white neighborhood. He's obviously a threat. He's an imminent threat. We had to kill him before he killed us because, you know, obviously all black men can take on three men and, you know, take a gun away from yeah, them yeah. because they're superhuman uh, brutes and things like that. But they're also they're also making the claim that, you know, he uh, he was being a little bit, you know, aggressive with them in the encounter. I mean, not, oh, yeah. not initially, but as, as the encounter progressed, well, which yeah. is surely, you know, someone... Defending themselves, <laughs> is it not? You know? yes. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, this again. See, this illustrates the exact point. Exactly. Yes. He doesn't have. He didn't have a right to self defense. He no. couldn't get shirty. He couldn't get. I mean, what he did. What he did down there in Georgia was get uppity. He just got uppity against yeah. the fellas. Yeah. These good old boys, you know. I mean, this was just right out of um, Mississippi burning time. But the thing is, what's funny is that for all the right wing extremists now, who's you know who are exulting in the, the exoneration of uh, of Kyle Rittenhouse, is you know self defense. Was always just a smokescreen, you know. What, what, you know, what they see is the exoneration of vigilante action against anyone protesting racial injustice, uh, you know, the systemic racial disparities in our in our police actions and court rulings against black people, you know, vigilante action, including up to including killing people in defense of, you know, uh, property and uh, the life. Because Kyle Rittenhouse said he was going to Kenosha to protect this shop, this store, you know. Yeah. So you know, he was there to protect property, but. Um, so what the, but what's really got interesting about this case is, of course, that uh, the people that were killed were white people. Kyle Rittenhouse killed, you know, two white men. And uh, so you have all these right-wing extremists, which now include the majority of GOP office holders. Um, you know, they take from that that the verdict is confirmation of the right to use violence to defend the supremacy, you know, of, of their beliefs and stuff like that. And um, again, as we just said, this principle only applies to white right-wing extremism it doesn't apply to any black militias you know it doesn't apply to any black panthers it certainly doesn't apply to any black individual 
As you just said, who like Kyle Rittenhouse said, I'm going to take up a gun and I'm going to go down there and defend you know, my people. So, uh, or defend Miles Chopper or something. And it also, but this is where we get back to the Rittenhouse case, it also doesn't apply to any white person who's on the wrong side of this equation, you see. You know, the, as I said, the two people that Rittenhouse shot were killed were white. You know, of the three people he shot and the two he killed yeah. were white. Yeah, absolutely. And you've seen all these right wing pundits offer this as proof. That the case wasn't racist at all. That he wasn't. It wasn't about race at all. And you had uh, Glenn Greenwald, you know, on his uh, continuing journey to the far reaches of the Plutonian right. Uh, you know, getting on, getting on television with his little, with his little friend Tucker, you know, and saying uh, the mainstream media was lying. You know, saying it's a racial case because these guys weren't these guys weren't white. I mean, these guys were white. But um, you know, but putting all that beside, uh, you know, this is a. A totally ignorant take because um, um, because you know what is what is it is not only enshrining the principle of uh, vigilante action against black people which we see everywhere but also anyone who stands with black people uh, yeah. against uh, racial inequality you know because let me tell you I mean I can just tell you when I was growing up in the in the sixties in the South in the Jim Crow South you know uh, uh, white people any white person who stood up for the principle of racial equality you know not only those involved in civil rights pro- uh, protests like uh, Bernie Sanders and stuff who were on the streets mm-hmm. and stuff. But just in, a, just in and maybe especially in ordinary life, you know, in their ordinary behavior, treating black people as if they were your equals. Such people, when I was growing up there uh, in the South, were despised almost as much, almost as much as black people were, you know. Uh, the worst insult, the very worst insult you could receive as a white person back then was to be called an in-lover. This was, yeah. this was, you know, that meant you know that put you that was meant to put you beyond the pale of human human decency and negate you as a person you know cast you down with a with a subhumans you know so so race was very much at the heart of the rittenhouse trial you know not because um not just because the protest was sparked by yet another act of gratuitous police violence against a black man uh you know and not just you know race in the most immediate terms, the visceral fear and hatred of black people standing up for for equal rights, which is what uh, all these protests were about, you know. But also any white people that stood with them, and and it was also about the systemic racism of you know historically and still going going of historical the systemic racism of policing and governing in America. You know the use of self defense as justifiable as justification for violence, uh, extremism, expropriation, taking over the Indians' land. You know we've got to defend ourselves against the Redskins. You know, you know the systemic structural injustices and imbalances that created the situation that you know that this vicious little fool Kyle Rittenhouse inserted himself into. You know this whole situation was created and and. Uh, um, there's a lot of interesting questions beyond the the, the trial itself, but I mean, I, this this idea that uh, it's being pushed by Greenwald and all these people yeah. uh, uh, that uh, you know it was white people, it was all white people involved. You know. The very heart of it was about race and about racism, and um, um, and it just goes back. It just is you know an outgrowth of things that have been going on um, for centuries, and and attitudes that I experienced very. Directly and viscerally, when I was growing up, you know, and these these attitudes, which which is really kind of, this is kind of horrible thing for people like old people like me, um, who came through, you know, to, to some not, you know, I was young in the in the civil rights era, but uh, you know, precocious little child watching the news, uh, and my father was involved in politics, and my father was involved in um, uh, in local politics, and also bringing uh, black citizens into local politics, you know. So we were involved in some in, in that in, to some degree, 
But to go through all that, uh, you know, to live through those attitudes, you know, you in love. Oh, I've heard that. I heard that many, yeah. many, many times. You know, more times you can even account, you know. And um, and kind of move through a period where it looked like you were kind of moving past that, you know, a little bit. Or that, uh, you know, of course such attitudes will exist, but they were no longer even socially acceptable. Whether somebody – this was a, this was like one of the great improvements of the 70s and the 80s uh, on the racial front is that – whether these, whether you harbored racial feelings in your heart or not, it wasn't acceptable to say them out loud, and it wasn't acceptable to act them. It wasn't acceptable to put them into law, you know, and it wasn't acceptable to walk out on the street and kill somebody over it. But what we have seen, you know, in this century, this uh, wonderful, enlightened 21st century have, you know, uh, um, is we've seen all these things become more and more acceptable again. You know, these things that, that you know, that I, I grew up thinking – we were getting getting past, you know. We we wouldn't see this sort of thing again, and now one, that was one of the great things that Trump did. Because I've always thought that one of Trump's greatest appeals was, uh, you know, uh, not his bullshit economic policies, which he didn't have any, except looting the country whenever he could. You know, he had nothing to really offer anyone. But what he had, you know, in in the way of um, uh, positive goods. But what he did have to offer so many people in America was this chance to, uh, you know. To, to you know, to say these things and feel these things openly again. Permission to express yes those, those kinds of thoughts. Well, permission yeah. to express those thoughts and permission to yes to uh, Im, Im, be imbued with them again, you know, and not fight them. And because uh, you know what was once so many things, so many times, and all the countless interviews that uh, New York Times did with Trump voters, you know, they uh, mm. they spent they spent four years in interviewing Trump voters. Um, you know, they said time time and again, the people who support him will say, you know, well, he says. What I want to say here, he says, you know, what can't be said anymore. He just says it straight out. And you kept wanting to ask all the time, what is it that you want to say that you can't say? What is it that you want to say that he, you know, that you can't say that he's given you permission to say? Well, you know, I know what it is you want to say. You know, I know what you want to say. Because um, I grew up hearing you say it. I know what you want to say. Um, but that, you know, this, this permission that he gives people to to um, act upon their own worst instincts, you know, which we see also uh, in slightly, only a slightly lesser way in uh, the Tory Party over here, you know, with uh, yeah. Patel and all these people. I think that's true. I find I find the I find the whole thing um, I think that I find the whole thing profoundly depressing in multiple ways. Um, you know, the, the, there is, as you say, this whole this whole racial aspect to it, which uh, is. Is there? I mean, I also I also find it extraordinary as uh, you know, as a non-American looking from the outside, not uh, you know, sort of familiar or imbued with any kind of gun culture like uh, mm. you know, like exists in the states. That there is, uh, you know, it is that there is a society where it is possible to uh, to wander around in a mm. volatile situation with a weapon of war and that not to be an issue at your trial for shooting people Just, on the I streets don't, don't know. you know that that's that's somehow well you know of course you know that's that's not the problematic aspect of this case you know that <laughs> what really honestly i mean but but it also but you know the whole as soon as you start looking into some of the you know sort of the the details about what happens it sort of just starts to uh to bring to light the kind of contradictions in the whole 
the whole line about uh, you know sort of crime being stopped by good guys with guns well, and, and all this sort of thing because you know what one of the one of the people who was who was shot I think it's the guy who was shot but not killed I mean yes. had a had a, had a gun, gun. Mm-hmm. yeah the the guy the second guy who was who was shot and killed who hit him with the skateboard mm-hmm. um, was attack you know running to attack Rittenhouse because he thought he was an active shooter you know who, who you know the, you know, a good guy with a skateboard, you know, and then then a, then another, you know, the good guy with the gun getting yeah. getting shot, but you know, then by by the bloke who gets acquitted for you know acting in self defence. I mean, it's yeah. just it just, I mean, from from the outside, and I'm sure to to a lot lot of Americans too, it doesn't really need illustration that that whole idea that uh, what we need is more good guys with guns uh, stopping active shooters is just plainly ridiculous, but. What what I find so hard to grasp is how anyone um, actually actually falls for it. I mean, I suppose I suppose no one does fall for it. The only people who who spout that kind of stuff are people who have a, a vested interest in uh, well. you know ca- you know sort of continuing the gun culture as it is. Whether it's just because they they uh, like to, to to have guns and shoot them, or whether it makes them feel sort of powerful or strong, or you know that I, I, I don't know. Well, it's, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary thing to me. Well, it is an extraordinary thing, but what's really extraordinary is uh, speaking as an old American who goes back, you know, <laughs> fifty, you know, uh, sixty, you know, sixty-three years, and certainly aware of political things uh, for more than fifty years. Um, is this gun culture that you see in America today uh, is not really? It's something that it is a very modern thing. It's a mm. very modern thing that came up, uh, you know, slowly through the 80s and mostly through the 90s with the uh, corporatization of the NRA and things. Because you know, I grew up, again, you know, I've made this point. I may have made this point before, but um, it's that I came up in a, in a culture that is absolutely the uh, quintessence of, of, of this, you know, bullshit heartland thing that, that the right wing pushes them, you know, small town Almost all white, uh, all Protestant, church going, you know, father was a deacon, father was a, uh, a veteran, you know, our boys went off to Vietnam, all this kind of stuff, people hunting, people fishing, all this kind of thing, you know, um, just good God-fearing people, no rich people, just ordinary folks, you know, this is the absolute quintessence of what all the right wing says is, you know, the heartland thing, you know, and... Um, you know all these right, all these really heartland people like uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley who went to Yale and Harvard and stuff like that. But um, all these frat boys, you know. <laughs> but you know, there's hardly any of that that you see in modern conservatism, modern right wing comes out of that. You know, when I grew up around these people, there was no gun culture like in, yeah. in small town Watertown. People would run down, ooh, look at my gun. And of course, you couldn't. Of course, because one thing, you had gun laws. You know, you couldn't. I, and I'm just thinking of all the good old boys that I grew up with, like my father and all the guys hanging around the feed store and the old farmers that came to town, you know, uh, and hung around the feed store and... And, you know, literally, you know, in their overalls and stuff like this is, you know, good God-fearing people. Um, they would have, if they saw someone walking down the street with a gun, you, you know, they would have thought he was absolutely out of his mind, you know. that You would have called, well, I, I remember something. You know, I remember my father calling somebody who, who, who'd come out with a gun. He was mad at somebody. He came out on the street with a gun. Well, they called the police. There's a guy here with a gun, you know. There's a pistol. He was going to threaten somebody mm, he's having a fight mm, with, you know. Mm. It's, you know, it's absolutely. This whole gun culture that I see in America on the right wing, um, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it would be considered insane in the very heartland bedrock fundamentalist 
uh, ideal that they give for American society, you know. It was insane. It would have been insane. And so many of the things like that are insane, you know. It's like uh, they had gun laws. You couldn't carry a gun around in public. It was just, you know. Yeah. It was just you, you couldn't do it. Why would you, and why would you do it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe they were... Maybe what we have, maybe what we have is like this generation of these Hollies and Ted Cruz's, this generation of, you know, I don't know, soft frat boys who need a gun to make them feel like men or something. I don't know. But this gun culture, this, you know, Lauren Boebert with her showing her double guns and a picture of her 15 guns behind her and stuff like this. You know, this is like a, this is a modern development. This is a, and, you know, and a lot of it is a, um, you know, it's a commercial development. It's like it was like yeah. it's like the creation of a commercial yeah. need for the NRA, and you know, and, and it has a yeah. It's, it's a gun. It's the gun manufacturers and so on using the NRA as a uh, a kind of campaigning tool to enable them to sell more guns to their target audience, the American public, um, and then the resulting culture due to the success of the NRA as a campaigning organization in achieving that end the the result the resulting culture being uh, uh, taken forward by um, you know cert, you know certain frankly uh, unpleasant tendencies in in right-wing politics to get to the situation where we yeah. have yes where you know, we are you know, now. yeah it creates a, it creates a um, you know a community that you that you can then use to set off from the community and, uh, you know, to feel aggrieved and oppressed and all this sort of, you know, these guys are really oppressed. They, they, all the laws have just, you know, given over to them. But, um, yeah, yes, absolutely. It's, it's the creation of a, um, um, you know, a, a commercial group, a, a group of people who buy stuff. Uh, and then the politicization of that, the, the politicization of that, you know, you're yeah. politicizing it and turning it into, a, a, you know, a, 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 turning it into, exactly, gun culture, not just like, you know, yeah, there was people back in, you know, they had a they had a, a shotgun. And sometimes they would go hunting with it. My father didn't hunt, but they had, you know, they would go hunting, you know, and maybe they maybe they liked their nice gun, you know. Oh, this is a nice, nice, nice gun for hunting, you know. But this, you know, fetish worship of guns is uh that we see now, it's you know, it, you know it's just um uh, it's just far outside anything that um is actually Conservative in old America, you know. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, yeah. It has nothing the amount, to do with it. The, the amount of uh, the amount of guys walking around in uh, you know sort of ridiculous tactical gear, tagging their rifles and stuff like this. I mean, you don't you don't see you don't see that in any other country that is not uh, you know I don't know Ukraine or something. You, you right. know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's having that kind of uh, uh, civil war situation. You know, you just don't. Yeah. No, you don't. No, you don't see it. And well, it's just been, and it's just been used, and uh, and now it has created like a whole separate culture, you know. And uh, yeah, and um, and again, you know, all all the all these these right wing elements, you know, this stuff about uh, uh, even Rittenhouse going to defend himself and the gun culture, you know, all. Um, depend on the manufacture of grievance you know you, you've you know you've been wronged you're being oppressed you know you must defend yourself again you must defend yourself you must against you know white replacement and all this sort of things you know this is yeah. that the stuff that tucker talks about while glenn greenwald is sitting there next to him you know uh, but he, uh, i saw glenn was tweeting today oh but tucker's no racist he just he can criticize blm but he's no racist you know he just goes over to Hungary and he sits next to Orban and gives interviews like that about how George Soros and the Jews are yeah. driving out white people. But this doesn't seem to bother Glenn Greenwald. Um, but um, no, but it's, it's the manufacture of grievance 
And again, it comes to, you know, it's always been ludicrous all these years of the, the rise of the right is that the people who are being aggrieved and oppressed are 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 the people who control the society, the majority of people in the society, you know, it's like um, uh, the, the people who control the institutions, the people who control the banks and things like this. You know, if you're, it's, it's white society, somehow you're being, you're being oppressed, you know, because uh, what comes to, because of course what we see now in the council cancel culture clan stuff is that uh, you're oppressed if someone criticizes you. If someone says, oh, you know what, I think your racial attitudes are retrograde, Mr. Andrew Sullivan. Oh, my God, that's cancel culture. I can't be criticized. That's cancel mm, culture. Mm, well, mm. no one's canceling. You can say whatever you want to. You were on 60 Minutes last week, you know, yeah, spouting, yeah. spouting your absolute nonsense. But, um, but yeah, yeah the, the idea that, that – well, that's what the idea that, you, that you're dominant, that, that the unspoken and a lot of times unconscious assumption – of uh, the superiority of white people uh, and uh, wealthy people, or et cetera, whatever, you know, in, of, the, of the ruling elites, you know. Uh, if you challenge that, even verbally, you're somehow oppressing someone, you see. You know, it's like you're, you're getting to the heart of society in that way. And it's a, it's a, it's a really curious phenomenon. But um, why, why, why is it, do you think, that the, uh, um, the, the Republican Party, I suppose, or, or um, right wing. Uh, activists in general have been so successful at turning um, the kind of people that you're talking about in in rural Tennessee into uh, MAGA. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, but um, why have they been successful? Well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of larger questions that, you, that could go to that, and one larger issue is the failure of, um, for want of better words, liberal Democrats or the Democratic centrist or whatever you want to call it, to actually address people's needs. Because, uh, you know, the the Democratic acquiescence in the uh, takeover by corporate America, you know, the takeover of, uh, you know, the, the sending out of the factory jobs. And yeah. Like that. I mean, I mean I, it's not just, it's not just uh, economic, but, um, and of course, they play on these deep emotions, but um, I, I mean, but to, I, 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 as you know, Chris, I agree entirely with you about the uh, the patheticness of uh, you know the Democrats in in the US and you know Labour in the UK of of left wing uh, parties in in general in in liberal democracies that uh, you know so we that we uh, see. I, I, I'm completely with you there, but you know if the Democrats are not being given people what they need, I mean. In, in that kind of economic sense, nor have the Republicans. So I just, no. I just, I just wonder why, why, why it is that, that the Republicans have been so successful in uh, kind of molding people to to their way of, of, of seeing things, and not just, not just as you, you know, not your kind of uh, in quote centrist uh, corporatist Republicans either, but increasingly uh, and mm. with an accelerating kind of movement towards the most extreme. Uh, versions of uh, of right-wing thought as well i just uh... well i mean i think one thing is that yeah no n- neither side you know have been addressing uh the needs of ordinary people or just the uh, you know of ordinary governing and just mm-hmm. why don't we build a, a slightly better society year after year you know no one's addressing that need so but what the republicans are offering what the right wing is offering are these emotional triggers, you know, that, so they will address emotional needs. You know, everybody has both, you know. And so it's like uh, if, if you're of centrist and you're a technocrat, now here's what we have to offer is some uh, uh, some tax credits, you know. It's like, uh, and that's all we have to say. Because, you know, they too have, 
you know, they abandoned the idea of Americans as citizens, as fellow citizens, you know, working together in a democracy, you know, the sort of FDR style um, liberalism, that kind of thing, you know. We work together, we, we vote for people who will help, you know, lift all boats and all that kind of stuff. No, they're just, you know, they, they bought into the corporate thing. Well, we must, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to raise your neighborhood because we're going to put in a business center there, you know. I mean, and I'm the Democratic mayor and I don't, that's just what we do because that's what, that's, that's what we are, you know. That's where the, we're the new Democrats, we're the Clinton Democrats. So if, if you don't give anybody anything, so they give nothing, even emotionally, you know, you, how emotionally can you be attached to tax credits, you know? They're not telling you that, gosh, you're part of a movement that's making the world better, just like the New Deal or something like that. You're carrying things forward, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a great vision of a better world that we're, we're going to help you build. It's like, oh, no, it's just going to be, uh, um, you know, some technocrats doing some, some technical policies and rich people get rich, and you're just going to kind of be left over here. And so there's no, there's no emotional thing for people to grab hold of. There's nothing that... Uh, that would bind them even, you know, and so what the, Dem- what the Republicans have done, the right wing, you know, they come in with these, these negative emotions and they'll bind you with a negative emotion because you can be bound that way just as, you know, just yeah. like, uh, yeah. uh, you know, anyone who's been in uh, grammar school and there's a bad teacher and everybody gets bound up against the teacher, you know, so, you know, but it's a, you can uh, be bound up in these negative emotions and then they, um, like we said earlier, if they play upon your worst instincts, I mean, we have these worst instincts because they're, they're powerful in us, you know. I mean, that's 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 why they come out, and that's why they can be shaped and molded on a society societal level, like we see with uh, the right wing, and and you know, and they're immensely rich backers, you know, these billionaire backers who who push everything all the time through all levels, you know, from academia down to the street level. They're always pushing all the time with all their money, you know. So you have you have that level bringing out the worst instincts. And, um, and, and so, um, and there's nothing to counterbalance that, you know, what, you know, just on a very practical term, we have the Federalist Society, you know, the, the, the judicial group, and that's, that's just spent 30, 40 years pushing, 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 pushing these, and now they're, you know, now they control the judiciary, now they control the Supreme Court, you know, and with a, with a sort of iron-wheeled, uh, dedication to this right-wing thing, you know, to push it as far as it'll go, you know, and to keep pushing, you know where it's been the counterpoint to that, uh, not not say on the left. You know, not to say there's you know, where's the far left counterpoint to that, but where's the mainstream counterpoint to that? You know, where where are the counterpoints to all that? Yeah. And we and we look at this this what's happening this year. This year, uh, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've seen uh, the state legislatures legislatures uh, gerrymandering Democrats out of existence. You know, cutting all kinds of people out of representation, and also. Uh, was it uh, George Arizona? I think this week, you know, uh, promoting laws that would allow the state legislature just control the electoral process, so that if if say in Arizona they don't like the, the the presidential result, they'll just throw it out, and the state legislature will decide. You know, and this is happening in Wisconsin and places like this. You know, they are literally in front of our eyes, uh, tearing uh, the liniments of democracy apart. They're just tearing them apart. I mean, you know, uh, and, and it's very open. It's very obvious. And they've been doing it for years, but now they don't, they have no, they make no pretense. Where's the opposition to this? Where's the opposition to this? You know, the Democrats won't do anything about it. They won't even pass their, the, you know, this very mild voting rights law that they have in the Congress. It's, it, it's interesting what you say about that, um, that kind of emotional appeal. And I, I and, and I, I, I agree, I think, uh, that, uh, I think you're right that the uh, the right success has been uh, using those 
dark emotions to mm. to bind people together and to motivate people uh fear anger grievance right. all that kind of thing now i mean there there is it seems to me a um you know there are some people on on the left who who um also make the kinds of appeals that that, that you say are are absent um but it's the difference is, it seems to me, is that those kinds of people get mm. crushed by the mainstream left yes. first. <laughs> you yes. Know, you know, oh. the, the right doesn't have to do anything to uh, to, to sort of uh, criticise or uh, uh, demonise them. It's done perfectly well for them by oh. by the by by the mainstream centrists. Well, well, absolutely. What you described as you know the uh, absolute. Uh, Pith of what's going on right now, and that's what we see. Yes, of course, there are, there are people like uh, Bernie Sanders. If we come back to that, you know, and I'm not like some super worst of Bernie Sanders. You know, he's a he's a man like any other man. But um, you have people like Sanders. Sanders had great emotional appeal, and he stirred people with emotional appeal. Yeah. And he also he did something that the left used to do, or the you know Democrats used to do, is they also used anger. You know, anger against the rich people who are taking stuff away from you, anger against the bosses. You know, anger against the injustices that we see on the street. You know, to mobilize this kind of anger. That's what even Martin Luther King was mobilizing this anger. You know, it's like, you know, anger is not always a negative emotion. You know, and uh, and feeding a press is not already a negative emotion if it's what's actually happening, if it's the proper response to injustice. And yes, and he plays on that, and there's other uh, other Democrats who play on that. And um, But yes, exactly. The minute they start to, to threaten the institutional control of the party, which is absolutely in a stranglehold by these corporate corporate de- democrats and the corporate then they get they get marginalized they get pushed down we saw what happened to sanders both in 2016 and in 2020 you know they yeah. they suddenly all combined against him and you know and they advanced this well, anyway they advanced joe biden let me just say <laughs> joe biden i won't even go into description but um you know and, and yes they kill every movement like that they kill anything that will this is what i find is so puzzling they will kill anything that will save them Anything that arises, and they had a great chance in 2020 when they came in with, you know, all this anger against Trump and people ready for massive change. You know, they, they could have really pushed it. And they came out, you know, and Biden came out, I've got a $6 trillion Build Back Better plan, you know. Yeah. And now it's a, a, a $1.1 trillion, and one of the biggest items in it is a gigantic tax cut for uh, rich people up in the Northeast, you know, the, the yeah. salt tax thing. So, I mean, you know... I, I was just thinking about it just this week. I was looking at the New York Times, you know, and uh, the kind of the way they're sort of starting to to uh, process everything and kind of play everything. And uh, I just feel like I've, I'm getting a feeling, and I hope I'm wrong. As I as I said before, you know, uh, I'm always, I always hope I'm wrong. And everything I've said tonight, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I hope you know, it's like what are you talking about? There's no racism, man. You're just full of shit. You know, um, it's really uh, it's really a paradise. You're just uh, you know. Uh, you're just stupid. I, I'd be happy to be stupid on that level. Uh, I'm not, but I would be happy to be. But um, I just get the feeling. Uh, I think what you're seeing is that um, in these in these institutional uh, bastions, you know, like the, the uh, corporate media and, and the Democratic leadership, I think they've sort of given up on democracy. I think they've you know they're just starting to give up on it. And what we're seeing is people like uh, people in the New York Times. Um, uh, like the New York Times, is sort of positioning themselves for how they're going to survive in the new realities that are coming. I just, they're not fighting for it, you know. And uh, uh, I, was, I had this thing I've got going on Twitter. I've just now started. You know, I'm thinking about putting together a list of 
all these pundits out here, a lot of centrist pundits, uh, who, the ones who will be the ones who will accommodate themselves to the new realities, you know. And so, because um, you can just see what, and I, I just don't see any, I don't see any will in these institutions, certainly not in the controlling interests of the Democratic Party, to to fight what's going on. I think it's like, well, you know what, what's coming is, uh, well, the, yeah, the Republicans are going to control most of the states, and maybe they'll control most of the government. Uh, but we can we can accommodate ourselves to that because we'll still, you know, we'll still go to the Hamptons, we'll still go to Martha's Vineyard, we'll still have our investments, uh, you know, like Nancy Pelosi. We'll still do all that. We'll still have all. We'll still have our good life. Yeah, and and we can still, you know, is in fact even better. We can still be the opposition. There'll still be an opposition. There was an opposition even against Tiberius and uh, people like that. You know. Um, but you know, there, we'll see, we can still be opposition, but we won't have respond. We don't have to do anything. We can pose and we can preen and we can, you know, we can put on kente cloth and kneel down in the in the well of the Senate, you know, and and, and then not do anything, and then not pass any gun laws, not pass any uh, laws about uh, racial equality in 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 the justice system. You know, they can, they'll still be able to do everything they do now, except they won't have any responsibility for having to actually do something. So uh, I just feel like I just get the sense, and, and and I know I'm being a little bit uh, broad on this, you know, but it's uh, I just get as, as sort of a general zeitgeist is this sense of, and and I think you can see this in history. It happens sometimes. They've just given up on democracy. You know, it's like the people in Weimar or what else. You know, well, look, it's just we've just given up on it. It's it's too hard. You know, the right wing is too powerful. And again, I think we need. I think it needs to be emphasized over and over again. Uh, you know, the right wing is a minority. There are, the, you know, the far yeah. right is a minority, but they are backed by immensely powerful and wealthy people. You know, the, the Cokes and the the Mercers and these people who, again, as I said before, you know, they fund university programs, they fund school programs, they fund, you know, uh, magazines, they fund publishers, they fund, uh, you know, ALEC, the, the, the legislative council that, you know, makes co- cookie-cutter laws for, you know, it's just everywhere, and it's so much money that it's, it's hard, to, uh, hard to deal with. But, I mean, and I just feel like this, that's what, I feel like this is what I get from Nancy Pelosi, and it's like, it's just too hard, we just don't want to do it, and we don't need to do it because we're not going to be affected by it. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you can broadly call, you know, you may well be right about large sections of what you can broadly call the establishment, which, yeah. you know, includes um, includes most of the Democratic Party, includes uh, a, a large number of, uh, you know, uh, newspapers and, and, and so on. Media, media empire. Me, yeah, and, and media outlets in general. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you're, uh, I, I think you may well be right, but you know, sort of where where I see, um, I suppose, more cause for hope, if that's the right word, in the circumstances, mm-hmm. is is that um, although they might not have anything to lose, whatever the political dispensation, or you know, have anything to lose from accommodating themselves to increasing authoritarianism, mm-hmm. there are um, a large number of people in in the U.S. Um, I mean, in the U.K. in Europe, generally, who. Uh, who do have a lot to lose? Oh, I mean, uh, yes. From uh, from uh, authoritarianism and uh, are beginning to. I was going to say beginning to realise, but it's not. It's not that the realisation has come late, but beginning to organise around the fact that the establishment yeah. is not going to save them. Yes. Oh, oh, I agree with that. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of forces, uh, and you know if. 
the coming authoritarianism is not going to be uh, as it never is. It's, it's never imposed easily, you know, and yeah. it, it never lasts because it causes trouble. It causes great anguish. It causes reaction. And uh, no, you you know, uh, reaction in the good sense and in the bad sense. Of course, cause what also is going to happen is if you have the um, the, the establishment, as it were, you know, sort of giving up and saying we're just, you know, we're just going to we're going to accommodate. Uh, um, then you're going to leave a lot of people without any kind of organization, and, and if and a lot of them are going to come together in a positive way, a lot of them are going to just go with, yes. you know, the other ones. It's like because well, look, everything's everything is hell. Everything's falling to pieces. Uh, uh, must be these people coming over the border. You know, I'm going to join you know, whatever. You know, I'm going to join this militia or whatever. It's like yeah. the same way, same way. Uh, uh, you know, people in the private areas might join a gang. Well, look. There's no way out of me to do anything. I'm going to join this gang. At least I'll have some power in that. At least I'll have some identity in that. You know, at least I'll have some agency in that kind of area. You know, so I mean, that's that's the danger. Well, I mean, that's what I mean. That's as you say, that's both the hope and the danger. Is that if if authoritarianism comes or comes on more strongly, you know, it's going to produce intolerable pressures. Yes, absolutely. You know, in in a lot of people's lives, and people are going to take action one way or another about it. So. Um, I mean, I guess it, I guess it may be interesting to to uh, talk in the in the next episode about how those sort of dynamics might play out in in the wider uh, uh, context of um, you know sort of coming environmental oh, uh, uh, yeah. catastrophe. Yes, I was going to bring that up, but yes, yeah, you're right. That sh- that should be an episode. Yeah, one, because yes, yeah. all this stuff ties into this because what we're seeing is this sort of uh, civil- civilizational change and breakup mm-hmm. uh, and. All these same pressures are going to are are actually magnified a hundredfold in the climate change yeah. uh, uh, crisis. I think. Yes. So the article that Chris was talking about and which kickstarted our discussion in this episode is called "Carl Rittenhouse is an American" by Patrick Blanchfield, and it is indeed available on Gawker. We'll post a link to the article in the show notes so that you can have a read of it yourself. So next week we're going to be talking about the uh, climate crisis and its intersection with some of the political currents which are swirling around at the moment. Um, Certainly, though not exclusively, we'll be talking about the way in which the climate crisis intersects with the rise of right-wing populism and thinking about uh, tendencies uh, such as fossil fascism, uh, as described by Andreas Malm, and uh, the, quote, new ecology uh, which is uh, promoted by people like Le Pen in France. Um, but we will also be uh, thinking about other ways in which uh, the politics of the climate crisis might develop, some of which will be slightly more hopeful. Um, and uh, I think a lot of our discussion will be based around an article called The Trans-Apocalyptic Now by Alex Stefan, which is available on his Substack, and um, we'll post we'll post a link to that uh, in the show notes too, so that you can have a look at that if you fancy before listening to episode two of Boondoggle soon. Boondoggle. Obviously, the most important question today is: Have you been to Peppa Pig World? Well, of course. <laughs> what the hell's going on?